welcome to I Don't Need an Acting Class with Milton Justice. The thing about it is, look, we are someplace, and we do have a relationship with the place, and what makes it easier for us is if we are someplace, and therefore we live off this place. And it is helpful for us as a key to the character. That way, I'm not stuck in no man's land trying to figure out what's going on with this dude. I mean, the reason I liked JP's building the relationship that Tom has with his sister and her old phonograph records is because in building the relationship to the phonograph records and her with the Victrola, it helped him get a relationship with her. Something very sweet about it, Laura. And it's... It's childlike. But in all the, um... In all the right ways. She leans on the table. Cranks the gramophone. Happy days are here again. And for Laura... That's all it takes. And happy days are here again. And there is a reminder. It's her way of shaking me by the shoulders and saying, we're here. Smile. We're alive. There are things to enjoy, like when we were kids. And it does make me smile. It does make me think if Laura can love for a moment, can love life, can be happy, can celebrate, even if it's a fantasy. And let her have it. Let her have it. She's, she's better than me like that. <clears throat> she's stronger than me in that way. I say let her have it. Good for you. You don't need to be outside in the misery and the drudgery and the suffering. You stay here with your your beauty and your little joys. Because I love when you play the gramophone. And look, I go back to the idea that part of the talent of an actor is trying to figure out what do I need for this part this time? Well, sometimes it's building the place. Sometimes it's building something else. Uh, Ateo is working on Long Day's Journey into Night and is depressed all the time now. But when I directed it, Guy and Teo both know the woman that played Mary Tyrone. She was brilliant. And at the first read-through, she had the part. Everybody else was like a blithering idiot. And she just knew what to do with it. I never directed her for five months of rehearsal. I, uh, she was so remarkable. But one of the things that happened was my friend John designed the set 
And we had difficulty figuring out where the rest of the house was because of the way he designed the set. He had this phenomenally brilliant idea that there were windows are on all four sides because what he wanted was it to look as if everything was on the outside and the family was stuck on the inside. So what we ended up doing one day in rehearsal, because the actors are driving me insane, was we started talking out the upstairs. And we knew enough about the play to build the upstairs, but it was like watching actors looking at the ceiling and what was right above this room is where Mary Tyrone was shooting up morphine. And what was interesting is as the actors were building this place, they were getting a relationship both with the house and with their mother. And she, in describing the house, was getting how much she hated that house and how they had to spend every summer there. Every single time we walked onto the set, which we did every day for five months, every single time we walked on the set, the set brought the actors to life. They were somewhere. They were not on the set designer set. They were somewhere. And that's also part of it. It's that I'm somewhere. I am not in a vacuum. There is a place. There is a man who's wet from having pissed himself, who's wet from having vomited on himself, who's sitting in the slushy snow that's dirty because it's on the side of the road where cars have been driving by. And so he's in the dirty snow. So do you see what I mean? So in other words, I'm building everything knowing that it is there to feed me, to give me something. The prop department cannot do that. The prop department will put out the little glass animals, but the actor has to bring them to life. And if the actor doesn't bring them to life, it's a prop. And it has a deadly quality about it. I was reliving for Teo when Chris and I Chris's wife was doing a play in the Cape and my close friends have a house in the Cape. And so I was going up for the weekend and his wife happened to be opening for in a play. So we driving up to the Cape together. And so I, as we were approaching New London, Connecticut, I said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Eugene O'Neill house. And so... Across the street from the Eugene O'Neill house, by the way, was the best fish and chips I've had in years. But we went to the Eugene O'Neill house about the time that some tour group was there. And the sweetest girl who worked, who's I guess was a summer volunteer, was telling them all about the, uh, you know, the house and what it was. I think they were part of a tour group. Imagine a tour group going to the Eugene O'Neill house. But at any rate, when I walked in, the girl said to me, oh, oh, you're not part of the tour. Well, you're welcome to join us. Do you even know what this house is? And I went, 
do I know what this house is? And it, I just suddenly went to church. And I said, this was the summer home of Eugene O'Neill, who wrote possibly the most brilliant play in the history of the American theater. And so the woman sat back and she said, well, why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> and so suddenly I had the first Methodist church tour of the Eugene O'Neill house. Look, we have a relationship in life to places, as Brady was saying, his relationship to these places gave him an emotion. So I said, you know, it's a valid question, Nicholas, is which pizza parlor should I choose? Well, it has to be appropriate to the piece that I'm in. And so that's it, because if I can build it, if I can see it, if I can live off of it, it's like going back and visiting an old friend. My grandfather, who had a third grade education, he was a farmer, and the family moved him out of his farm when he got too old into the city. And in the early 50s, the small town newspaper asked him to go back to the farm which had been three generations. So he went back to write a newspaper article about it. It's the most brilliant monologue I've ever read. I mean, it is like this incredible monologue about him being able to see children playing. First of all, I couldn't believe how poetic this man with a third grade education was because people used to talk better and people used to write better. But again, it was like visiting the house he grew up in, visiting the house where my father and his three brothers were born and grew up before World War II. It has history. So again, we have a relationship to places. It's one of the things that is easiest for us to build, quite honestly, because we can always be there. We can be on a set where they say, you know, we're only doing this with two boxes. And you say, fine, I'm fine with that. But for me, it's a throne room. And I live off of it as if it's a throne room. I Don't Need an Acting Class is created and hosted by Milton Justice. Producer is me, Walker Vreeland, and director of online media is Evan Sollers. Music is by Jeffrey Keezer. The opening piece tomorrow is from his album Playdate. What you're hearing now is M's Bedtime Blues. And for more info on Jeffrey's work, you can go to jeffreykeezer.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Uh, You can find us online I don't need an acting class.com where you can find show notes and videos. And we're in the process of building the website as we speak. So uh, go check that out. You can also follow us on Instagram at I don't need an acting class. And uh, you can continue to send your questions to Milton at questionsformilton at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.